So today we are going to be in chapter 11, uh, and we are going to be looking at verses 5 and 6, but we're actually going to be moving around a little bit. And uh, if you've not been with us, uh, most of us have, but uh, we missed a Sunday here and there. And so I want to kind of talk to us about where, talk to you about where we've been and where we're going. Uh, the book of Hebrews is, a, is, is one of my favorite books. Um, I've loved preaching through this, and really it's a call to endurance. That's what it is. And so the, the, honestly, and, and a lot of individuals don't quite understand this, we, we often think that, that the preacher's job is to preach to the lost and to share the gospel with the lost, and that's what he's doing Sunday by Sunday. That's really not the preacher's job on Sunday morning. The preacher's job on a Sunday morning is to preach to the church. Now, inevitably, there are lost people that come to church, and hopefully they will hear the gospel, and they will rejoice uh, through the movement of Christ as he saves, and, um, and, and that will happen. But the preacher's job is to speak to the church, that body of Christ that has been purchased uh, by the blood of Christ, and then to call them to do two things. Number one, to live by faith, and number two, to endure, to persevere in the faith. And really, that's what uh, the book of Hebrews is. It is a, it is a, it's an, an exhortation of a pastor encouraging the church to endure. And so throughout this entire book, the, the author of the book, whom we don't know exactly who that is, uh, but the author is speaking pastorally to the church and encouraging them, here is this magnificent Christ that we have been blessed with. Here is the gift of the gospel that he has given us. Now let us, let us remember that gospel in which you first believed and then chase after Christ. Let us not forget the gospel which saves us. And so that's something that we want to remember as we walk through this. And so remember the fact that the pastor of this letter and myself, we are encouraging you, exhorting you to endure all right? There are many things that will be cast our way that will cause to, that will attempt to distract us from living and walking by faith, from following Christ, from persevering in the faith. There are many things that will try to distract us from that. And it's our job, our duty, our obligation to continue to seek after Christ in faith. And so this wonderful chapter 11 is this sort of, uh, this memorial, if you will, to the heroes of the faith that came before as an example of what it looks like to live by faith. And so in the beginning of chapter 11, the author writes, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this, meaning faith, our ancestors were approved. And right there at the outset, the author is saying, it was not by works. Their approval from God was not earned. It was received. It was received as a gift, which is faith. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, today. Now, last week we talked about uh, Abel. We talked about his faith and how that was poured out. And we don't know a whole lot about Abel. Well, honestly, we know just as little about our next character, which is Enoch. Now, 
these, for these next two Sundays, for last Sunday and this Sunday, and possibly the following Sunday, uh, we're going to be kind of walking through pretty slowly. We're going to pick this up pretty soon, and we're going to be naming out several characters at once. Uh, but I felt that it was important to kind of slow down at the beginning here, especially with these characters we don't know a whole lot about. So we're going to be talking about Enoch today, and this passage is entitled, or this sermon is called Walking by Faith. Now, I want to start by saying this. It is no small thing to say that you walk with God. It is no small thing to say that we are in step with the Lord. That is a huge thing that I think far too often we take for granted. That as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to walk with God. Not behind God, not ahead of God, but with God. And this is something that we, that we cherish. It's something that we often take for granted. And to use this as an example, we can go back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve took for granted the fact that they were blessed with the opportunity to walk with God in the garden. They took that for granted. And then it just wasn't enough. They were blessed with this opportunity. I mean, listen to this. If, if I could go back there just real quick and just, and just uh, catch this real quick here. Um, in chapter, at the end of chapter 2, before we get into all the, the muck and the mire of sin, it says here, It says, the Lord God formed out of the ground every, this is verse 19, every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. We were given the blessing of naming all that God had created. What an amazing gift that is, right? That God, God didn't have to do that. He invited us into that world to allow us to take part in that. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found. Folks, he was lonely in the aspect he did not have someone like him. Now, folks, you cannot be lonely when God is your God, okay? Let's be very clear about that. But he did not have another counterpart, a helper, someone to walk alongside him, right? And so what does God do? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to cover over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman." for she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and the mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. And remember this, verse 25, both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. There was no shame to be felt in the garden when they were walking with God. But that didn't last long. Very quickly, Adam and Eve took the blessing that which God had blessed them with, took it for granted and said, that's not enough for us. That's not enough. Everything that you have given us is not enough. We want more. And therefore, we see in, verse, in chapter 3 that they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes were open to their nakedness. They felt shame. Sin enters the world. Creation groans now because of sin, waiting on redemption, waiting on that final reconciliation to occur. 
as we all do. But here we have Enoch, which is seven steps down there. What is it? Adam's great, 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 great. I'm not going to count it. Grandchild. Okay. We have this character Enoch that we learn about, which brings us to Genesis chapter five, verse 21 through 24. But we're not going to dive into that just yet. Our passage this morning is from chapter 11, verses five through six. And this is what the author of Hebrews writes. By faith, Enoch was taken away. And so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith, remember this folks, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us believe, Father, to help us grow in faith. Father, if there is someone in here this morning who has been trying to please God by their works, by their efforts, by their deeds, and not by faith, may their heart be pricked this morning. May they be saved. May they come to faith in Christ Jesus this morning. May we all walk with God as Enoch walked with God. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, what is it about this Enoch character? This is a really strange uh, passage when the author says, by faith, Enoch was taken away. What does that even mean, right? That he was just taken away, right? It, what, did, did God kidnap him? Is that what happened? Um, it says, and so he did not experience death. In this passage, the author uh, five times is imploring the audience to recognize the fact that Enoch did not die, that Enoch did not die. Two characters in scripture, do we find that happening in? Enoch, right there at the beginning. Enoch didn't die. He was taken away, all right? It says Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. Now, what we might try to, try to uh, do here is sort of twist this and say, if we please God enough, then we won't experience death. Maybe if we can walk with God like Enoch did, we also will avoid death because we don't want to experience death if we don't have to, right? Right? But here's the truth. If the Lord tarries, we will experience death. Does that mean that our faith was weaker than Enoch's? Maybe, maybe not. But that's not the point of Hebrews. That's not what's happening here. The author is not trying to say that if you live a good life like Enoch, and if you please God enough with your faith, you too can be carried up into heaven without death. Sounds like an infomercial, right? That's not what he's saying here. What he is saying is that Enoch is a model for what it looks like to walk with God. To walk with God. So what does it say in Genesis chapter 5? Let's just learn a little bit more about Enoch real quick. A little bit of background. Uh, Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 21, says, Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. Now, Methuselah, you might remember, is, what, is who? 
the oldest person to ever live, right? It just baffles evolutionary biologists. You don't really believe that there is this guy that lived to be 969 years old. Folks, starting next week, I'm teaching evolution in my Bio 101 class. It's going to be exciting. And we're going to talk a little bit about Methuselah. It's going to be interesting trying to, uh, trying to flip that one on its head, right? Because, folks, yes, I absolutely do believe it. I believe that there was this guy named Methuselah, and he lived 969 years old. Why? Because biologically I can prove it? No, because the Word says so. And so I believe that. Why do I believe that? Because I have faith. I have faith. Can I explain how that happened? No, I can't explain it. I can't explain it biologically. I can't even explain it 100% theologically. All I know is that this is God's word and I'm going to trust it over any science book, okay? I'm going to trust that. And so Enoch was, was th- 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. Folks, It causes us strain to walk with God for a week. Enoch walked with God for 300 years. We're going to talk a little more about that. And fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Another emphasis that he walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. Now, that's it. That's what we know in Genesis about Enoch that he had a kid at 65 years old. That kid would go on to live forever is what it seems, right? And then after 300 years of walking with God, he just poof, wasn't there anymore because God took him. That's all we hear about Enoch until we get to Hebrews. But there is this one other passage that tells us a little bit more about Enoch, and it's in Jude And it's really interesting because it kind of falls in this really odd spot in Jude. And it's actually Jude verses 14 and 16. There are no chapters in Jude. It's just like 30 some verses. But in verses 14 and 16, right in the middle of talking about some individuals about being apostate. So what Jude is telling folks is saying, listen, I would love to talk to you about the gospel right now, but... I need to tell you about these wolves in sheep's clothing, all right? They are apostates, and they're going to try to lead you away from the gospel. And then all of a sudden, Jude just drops Enoch's name, right? And it says this, It was about these, speaking of the apostates, that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts, and they have done in an ungodly way, and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires, their mouths, utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. So we have Enoch in Genesis. There's an absence of Enoch all the way throughout Scripture until you get to Hebrews with a little bit of a description of who he is. And then, boom, in Jude, we see that what did Enoch do? He prophesies. He prophesies against the apostates. That's fascinating to me. And so what is it about Enoch? What, so what, let's just give like just a little description here. First of all, Enoch, who was married and he was a father. All right, we know that. Enoch prophesied in his day about apostates. 
and Enoch walked with God by faith, which pleased God. That's really what we know about Enoch. So how can we learn, what can we glean from the life of Enoch about our own walk with Christ and about our own walk in faith? Well, what we want to do is we want to look a little bit in Jude and find out what was Enoch prophesying against. Because if Enoch was an example of walking in faith, yet he was, a prof- he was prophesying against individuals who were walking as apostates, as those antithetical to Christ, then maybe we can learn a little bit about walking in faith by what it's not, right? You know, it's sort of like, and I've said this a lot, but you know, it's kind of like, you know, how can you, you know, what is the color blue? Well, I... I I can point it out to you, and I can tell you what it's not, all right? It's not green, all right? Well, what we're going to look at here is what faith is not. And so let's look at Jude, uh, verses 12 through 13, all right? And actually, what we're going to do here, if you want to turn to Jude, verses 12 through 13, I'm going to list just a few things that what Jude, I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to list a few things that Jude says that basically faith is not by describing what these apostates were. So Jude is prophesying against apostates, those who pretend to be of the faith, but who have no real faith. And so what was happening where it was, these apostates were coming into the church. They didn't really believe, but they were kind of coaxing and leading individuals just by their own influence away from Christ. And so he's calling them out. And so here are some descriptions. First of all, it says that these apostates, these people who did not walk by faith, number one, were designated for judgment long ago. So that comes right in verse four. It says that God had already long ago designated these apostates for judgment. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that there have been apostates for a long time. This is not a new occurrence, okay? There's nothing new under the sun. But secondly, it's that God was not surprised when there would be individuals that would rise up trying to lead people away from Christ. This was not news to him. This is a product of sin. And we see that even in our own day. We see these snake oil salesmen trying to share or teach or present or sell a gospel that is not really the gospel. It looks like the gospel. It's packaged like what we might think the gospel would be packaged as. But what it really leads to is it leads to death. And that's a very dangerous thing for us to latch on to. And so this is not anything new, and these apostates were designated for judgment long ago. It also says in verse 4, it says, they come in stealth. They're secret about it. They're conniving. They're deceptive about this. Their ways, sort of like a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing, is not going to prance on into a flock of sheep or a herd of sheep. What are they called? Flock, I was right, okay. They're not going to you know, prance on in there and make a bunch of racket and let them know that the wolf is here. What they're going to do is they're going to lead them astray inch by inch. They're going to take away one by one these sheep until there are no sheep, until they break it down into its essence of sin and debauchery. Thirdly, it says quite bluntly, they are ungodly. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that an individual is ungodly? 
Well, what it means is that they do not contain or have or bear the characteristics of God is that if God is the epitome of holiness, these people are the, an- they, they are the antichrist, if you will, little a, okay? They are completely opposite of everything that we consider good in God. They are antithetical to that. They are antagonistic against what is good, what is holy, what is right, what is pure, what is precious. They are ungodly. Fifth or fourth, I don't know, I've lost track. They turn the grace of our God into sensuality. They pervert the gospel. They pervert the gospel. Now, what exactly does that mean? We could discuss that. That's not what this message is about. But what we do know is that they turn the gospel on its face. They flip the gospel around. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about us. It has nothing to do with us. We are the receivers of this gift, right? The gospel is ultimately about God and His goodness and His kindness. I saw a, uh, I saw a tweet this morning, and I'm about ready to get rid of Twitter just because it's driving me nuts. But I saw a tweet this morning from a pastor that I, that I actually respect. I don't know a lot about him, but generally speaking, I've read some of his material, and I generally respected him. And what he did was, he, did, he, he fell in sort of the mistake that, um, that a lot of people do when they're trying to write something pithy on Twitter or on Facebook, is they write something, and it sounds really good, but it is completely off track. In his very first line, he said, here's the gospel in three phrases. And his very first line was this, you were created to be loved by God. Now, I don't know if I've ever gone off on a soapbox or a tangent about this in a, in a sermon. I'm going to try not today because Christy, whoops, Christy has already told me that people's stomachs are going to be growling because of the time change. So I'm not going to, I'm going to attempt not to do it, but I do want to say this. You were not created, first and foremost, just so God could love you. That makes it seem as if that there was a deficiency, a hole, that God couldn't love what he needed to love, so he made you so that God could love you. Is it true that God loves you? Absolutely. He absolutely does. But that was not the main reason why God created you and I. He created you and I to bring glory to himself. That's why sin is such an evil thing. Because instead of giving God glory, it takes it away. It tries to rip the glory from God and apply it to man. And that's a main issue. The gospel is not mainly, primarily about you and I. It's about what God did. It's about who God is. That's the gospel. And one of the first things that apostates, that false preachers, teachers, snake oil salesmen will do is that they will play and tickle your ears until they fall off by telling you that the gospel is really about you. It's it's about you. Folks, it's not. And I'm going to tell you, you don't want the gospel to be about you. You want the gospel to be about God's glory. 
You want it to be about his majesty and his exaltation. Because when it becomes about us, it loses its power. It loses its power to save. And then it says they deny Jesus. Well, I mean, right there's a, I mean, right there should clue us in that these are apostates, that these are individuals who are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, that they are denying Jesus. What are they denying? They're denying his divinity. They're denying his humanity. They're denying his power. They're, de- they're denying his lordship. They're denying so many different things. Throughout history, there have been so many different ways that individuals have attempted to deny the power of Christ. But Christ does have the power. And then we jump to verses 12 through 13. It says, These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. That is a scary, scary description of someone not walking by faith, but following into the depravity of a sensual gospel that is man-centered and not Christ-centered. These are individuals trying to distract and pull away individuals who are trying to follow Christ. And so like the author of Hebrews, what Jude is doing here is he's contending for the faith of believers and encouraging them to persevere in the faith. Do not follow these charlatans, but follow Christ. Or like Enoch, walk with God. Walk with God. Do not forsake the gospel that you have been gifted with. Walk with God. A lack of faith, unbelief, it will lead to judgment. It is guaranteed. It is guaranteed. So now let's look at Enoch as an example of faith. And so I'm going to reread chapter 11, verses 5 through 6, so we can just get a little bit of a picture here. All right? By faith, Enoch was taken away. By the way, that does not mean that we have to have faith to believe that Enoch was taken away. It is that by his own faith, he was taken away because he pleased God. So by faith, Enoch was taken away. And so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. God. If we go back up here to verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 2, for by this, by faith, our ancestors were what? Approved. It's by faith that we are approved. Not by works, not by deeds, not by a funny sense of humor, all right? Not by a, a captivating personality, all right? Nothing like that. We are approved by our faith. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to see individuals trying to earn their righteousness by their works, trying to please God by all these good things. Folks, works righteousness is the biggest lie 
that we could ever imagine. And I'm going to tell you, today is an appropriate day to be speaking on this because yesterday was one of the greatest days in all the year. Not because it was Halloween, even though I do enjoy myself some Halloween and candy, all right? It's because yesterday was Reformation Day. Yesterday is the day that we uh, pinpoint in history where the Reformation began, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Church, basically contending for a faith that the Catholic Church did not agree with. And what, his, what one of his major points was this, is that your works are filthy rags in the eyes of God. The only thing that saves is faith that is given to us as a gift by grace, which is completely, completely the opposite of what the Catholic Church taught and, folks, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to say, continues to teach. All right? We are not saved by our works. Are our, are our works important? Absolutely. James would tell us that our faith without works are dead. But our works without faith are rubbish. They matter not. We are saved by grace through faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. Since the one who draws near to him must, number one, believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So let's look at this example of Enoch by just talking a little bit about him. First of all, we might make the mistake that Enoch, well, he was just born a Christian. I mean, that's what we find. We don't hear anything negative about Enoch. But what we do know is that he was born post-fall. He was born after original sin enters the world. What does that mean? It means that he was not born a Christian. He was not born a believer. So therefore, at some point in his life, he was reconciled to the Father. And I would add, he was reconciled to the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ retroactively, if you will. Okay? He was saved by faith. So Enoch was not always a believer. He was reconciled with God. We also know that Enoch obeyed God. Because at this point, we really don't know much about the commands of God, except this, be fruitful and multiply. That's what we know. So in the Old Testament, be fruitful and multiply, especially early on, was an obe a factor of obedience to God. And we know that he did that, that he was fruitful and that he multiplied. We also know that Enoch served God. So not only did, was he reconciled with God by faith, not only did, was he obedient to God, but he served God by prophesying. He prophesied. Now, I, I am careful to call Enoch a prophet, all right? I'm careful to call Enoch a prophet, but I will say that we find that he did prophesy, that he proclaimed, if you will. <clears throat> and we also know that by faith, Enoch pleased God. What does that mean? It means that, number one, that Enoch believed in God. He believed that God existed. Number two, he believed that God was going to fulfill his promises, right? It says, it is impossible to please God without faith, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists, and that what? He rewards those who seek him. That is saying that we believe that God is going to fulfill his promises. 
This morning, let me ask you this. Do you really believe that God exists? Do you believe that God exists? Do you believe that God will fulfill his promises? And you might say, well, you didn't mention anything about Jesus. I thought that's what it meant to be a Christian. Well, how does God fulfill his promises? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. Believing that God will fulfill his promises, that he will reward those who seek him without conforming your will to Christ's will is not belief. Because the way that God's promises are answered are through Christ. And Enoch believed that. Did he know who Jesus was? No, Enoch did not know who Jesus was. Jesus had not, it was not the appointed time for Christ to be incarnate yet. But we do know that Enoch believed in the promises of God and Jesus was the answer to those promises. So we have a further development of the definition of faith. In chapter, in uh, in verse 1, it says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. It is also a belief, an understanding that there is a God. There is a creator God who is providentially and sovereign over all things. And number two, the, an evidence of faith is that you believe that this God is going to come, come through with every promise he has made. That if you seek him, or if I could define it this way, if you follow Christ you will be rewarded as Enoch was rewarded. The point of Hebrews is not to say that if you live the faith that Enoch had, that God's going to rip you from this earth without experiencing the pain and turmoil of death. What he is saying is that if you have the faith that Enoch did, you will receive your reward. Whether it's by death or Christ comes prior, you will receive your reward, which is what? Jesus. That's the reward. That's the reward. You get a lot of heavenly things to come with it. But the main reward is Jesus. Folks, to our culture, biblical faith is weird. It's weird. I'm, I'm, I just want you to know that if you are truly walking by faith in Christ... And if you are proclaiming this and not just keeping it to yourself, you will be seen by your culture as weird. In fact, you might be seen in your culture not just as weird, but as an enemy. And that's what we're seeing now. Is that Christians are no longer just, well, they're just weird, nice people. They're good for society. No, they're now enemies. They're enemies to contend with. Your faith and you living out your faith is perfectly fine with the culture until it starts interfering with the culture or what we might like to say as progress. But what the, what the author of Hebrews and Jude, and Enoch, and their lives' testament would tell us is this. If you walk by faith, you might also die in faith. 
And you have to be good with that. You have to be okay with that. In fact, I might say this. In order to be a Christian, in order to truly walk by faith with Christ, you have to be willing to die. And I don't mean just die spiritually, to sin. You have to be willing to physically die for Christ. Now, I pray that that doesn't happen or come to that with us. I pray that that doesn't happen. But I also pray that if we do face that, that we all have the faith to say, Jesus is Lord, whether here on earth or in heaven. Jesus is Lord. And so if I live, I'm going to live by faith. But if I must die, let me die knowing that I died in faith to Christ. It just so happens that Enoch was taken away. But every other individual, including Christ himself, died with faith. So how do we move forward? How do we move forward as we close? Well, let me ask you this. How is our faith informed? Okay? So if I could say this is the time where I, where I ask you or I, I point out some ways to demonstrate how faith is informed, how it's cultivated, how it is nurtured, and how we grow in faith. First of all, our faith is informed by Scripture. That is how our faith is informed. It is informed by this text. It is not informed by culture. It's not. If we look to inform and cultivate our faith by the world's norms, it is no longer faith. It's just not. Faith is countercultural. And so if you are swayed by the tide of culture more than biblical truth, your faith is at best immature. And at worst, it is dead meaning you don't have it. Faith, number two, is worked out in the church. Your faith is worked out in the church, not just by yourself. What does that mean? It means you need the body of Christ. All right? I don't mean that you're... That I'm not saying here that you just need a group of Christians that you're friends with, that you hang out with. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that you need a local body of Christ that is there to pray for you, correct you, um, hold you accountable, love you, lead you, teach you, encourage you, provide an opportunity for you to serve. That is how your faith is cultivated and lived out 
in the body of Christ, not as lone rangers, but faith is also worked out individually, not just in the church. What does that mean? It means that you don't flip your faith switch off after Sunday morning church, and all of a sudden now I can live as the world. Your faith is faith in the body of Christ and as an individual. I want us to see that. I want us to see that. Faith is deepened through prayer. It is deepened through prayer. Faith is more than words, but it's also in deeds. One of the things we talked about is that faith is not just simple belief, but is belief accompanied by action. We see that Enoch did not just believe in God, but his belief stirred him to obedience and service. And so faith is more than words, but also deeds. But faith is more than deeds. It must also be accompanied by words. In other words, faith is not just earning righteousness through our works, but there is a theological aspect. We have to believe not just in God, but certain things about God. We have to believe that God is the Father of Jesus Christ. And some people will say, well, I'm not a theologian. Every single one of you are theologians. If you are breathing and you have an opinion about God, you are a theologian. You may not be a very deep theologian, but you are a theologian. You are making assumptions. You are casting opinions. You are making judgments based upon your worldview of whether God exists or not, and who that God is. And so our faith is not just a bunch of deeds, but it's also accompanied by that theological worldview. It's accompanied by what we learn from Scripture. Faith is witnessed and used by God so that the lost might be saved. The most powerful witness for Christ, for our children are their parents. Are their parents. Your children, your grandchildren, your friends' children are watching your every move. Every move. And so you might be helping or hurting the cultivation of faith in that child without even intending it. This is why it's so important for us to pour our lives into Jesus, not just publicly, but privately. This is why last week we talked about, you know, having a visual witness to Christ, that our children would see us pray, that they would hear us talking about God. Lucas and Jackson, one thing that they can say, now they can, they could, if, if, if I allowed them to speak right now, uh, and I won't, uh, they could pinpoint many, many faults that I have, and I have many, and they could lay them out on the line, all right? But they will also say that, that Crystal and I never miss an opportunity to talk about Jesus and hold their feet to the fire. That's one thing that we absolutely do. Let me put it this way, and I'm not patting myself on the back. This is just the truth. It is not an unusual thing. It's not a weird thing in our household 
to just start talking about Jesus. It's normal conversation. So let me say this, in your home, in your conversations, just make it a normal thing to talk about Jesus and how good he is and how awesome he is. Make that just normal conversation so that when you start talking about Jesus, they're not like, why are you talking about that? That's so weird. We never talk about Jesus. Start talking about, just talk about Jesus. Just talk about him. Like he's real. Like he's real. Like he's alive. Like he has changed your life. And you say, well, I haven't in the past. And so it would just be weird now. Yes, it will be. But after a while, it won't be. After a while, it won't be. Just talk about Jesus. And I don't mean in a vulgar way. <laughs> don't use, like, yeah, I talk about Jesus. I take his name in vain every chance I get. That's not what I mean. I mean, talk about him affectionately as an act of worship. Finally, last two things. Number one, faith can be nurtured, but it cannot be earned. Your faith is not earned. Ephesians 2.8. We are saved by grace through faith, which is a gift. Faith is a gift given according to God's grace. So let's let Enoch be an example, even if it's an, uh, uh, we don't understand a whole lot about Enoch and his life because we're not given him, we're given just enough. We're given just enough to see this, that Enoch was a man of faith. He walked with God. He lived out his faith and God rewarded him in one of the grandest ways that you could possibly re be rewarded. Let us follow his example and the examples of others in chapter 11 to see what it looks like for a person to walk and live by faith so that what? So that we might please God. That we might please God. And the way we please God is that we are bringing more and more glory to him. And that is a precious, precious thing.